Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another edition of the Richard Listens podcast. And we are happy to keep rocking it through 2021 as we enter the holiday season coming up on 2022. Today, we have one of my good friends, new friends in the sports psychology realm, Greg Metiskevich. He's going to be sharing with us his journey into clinical work and mental skills training. I always appreciate having guests who come from a variety of backgrounds. He has also been a VP of strategic partnerships in business development for Assembly Ventures for the last decade. So to have someone who comes from the business realm, who understands mental skills training, he's also a sports parent, kindred spirit like myself. And uh, he's going to give us some tips today on how to prepare for the new year, how to create habits, how to do some of the small things to create lasting change in your life so that when the new year ticks around, don't bring all the things that maybe we carried from the last year, whether it been the challenges economically, emotionally, COVID, some of the habits that it kind of pushed us into. Without further ado, we welcome Greg. So welcome, Greg Metiskevich. Where are you joining us from today? Currently here in Southern California, not but a quite gloomy Southern California. Right. I was out walking. I was like, this is kind of like East Coast right now. You know, I've come to LA not for this, but I guess we have to, you know, suffer through it for a couple of days a year. Right. There's a, there's a moment where I'm like, I don't like this. And then I'm like, well, it's kind of familiar. And then I'm like, well, I can't complain. Right. You got to go through this whole like checklist. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. But uh, I'm happy the mountains are getting snow, which will help those of us who like to go skiing. And uh, also, hopefully down the road, we'll have some water uh, come the summertime. (laughs) That's a big deal. Yes, we've had a drought in parts of Southern California. So it's it's always a blessing when we get rain out here. Just uh, not really equipped for a lot of the lifestyle, for the driving out here. For those of you listening who've never been to Southern California, the drainage on the freeways is not quite like the East Coast. So be prepared for uh, a rain day to be like a snow day. Uh, our seasons here in Southern California, I think are what fire season, mud season. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then, you know, sun, I'm trying to think of what else, what else did I miss? There was another one I know in there. Somewhere. Well, the fires is a big one. It's kind of, yeah, shocking and sad, but something we have to really be mindful of. Thank you for uh, asking me to sort of join the podcast. I'm a newbie to this, so I will I will do my best to engage a wonderful conversation. I know we have wonderful conversations on the phone. Hopefully we can do that here on uh, on this recording. That's all I ask. Thank you for joining me. This is really the gift been given to me, the, this podcast, to hang out with the people that I enjoy and to just see where our thoughts take us. So much changing in the world and uh, you like uh, are similar to myself. You've come, I guess, from the business path, but also a personal story of being a Division One athlete, I believe, or maybe you'll correct me, uh, but basketball player and married to a basketball player and uh, certainly a committed sports parent. So a lot of overlap there. Correct. Where'd you play basketball, Greg? So I went to, initially went to a school called Henderson State University, and then uh, I was trying to do that and become a, a pilot at the same time. So I, I realized as I was burning both ends of the candle. I had to choose one over the other. And so I ended up pursuing my flight courses, which uh, which took a lot of time. Unfortunately, it conflicted with the basketball schedule, which definitely on some level I regret doing, but I don't regret pursuing aviation. It was just, uh, 
I cut my basketball career a little short, but I guess I get to, I got to choose that as opposed to the other way around where I think for many athletes, it's very difficult when you're just not ready to stop playing and it's kind of, you know, foisted on you. So, uh, but my better half, she was, she was a, obviously a high level basketball player too, which we talked about. She received a division one scholarship playing at Georgetown. So she's really the athlete in the family. I like to say that uh, I just kind of, you know, follow her, follow her path. And later <laughs> in life, as I, as I, as I like to say, is I, I found this thing called triathlons and uh, I ended up as a little kid. I remember look, watching it on TV and I said, you know, I want to do that one day. And so I was able to do a number of different triathlons, but I, I did three full course Ironman triathlons across the United States. And wow. that, that's definitely something that I found to enjoy quite a bit. Again, started opening my mind up to what does it take? What, what is the mental side of performance look like? I'm sure we'll get into this and in, you know today, but I tested a few things out while doing those swim bike run courses of things to see what does it take, you know, how much of this is actually mental. Excellent launch point. I always love bringing people to my life who can help push me to take on new challenges. So if you're still out there doing marathon halves or something, someday I'd love to be keep the performance bar rising. So are you still considering it or is it turned all to uh, your son now? Well, for me, I've I enjoy running. I, I it's both a integrated part of my own sort of mental health practice in terms of being able to get out there and run regularly. I try to run four to five days a week, typically only do trail running at this point. And I, uh, I like to get in about somewhere around a hundred miles a month, uh, which is, which is really helpful on many levels. It helps me uh, stay healthy. And at the same time, I think I sleep, sleep a lot better as well. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that, that goal number, right? Most successful business men and women and, and also athletes have a number, right? Whether it be a certain amount of reps you want to get in or like a certain amount of miles you want to log yeah. uh, for your optimal fitness. I think uh, I, I recently saw something that uh, Coach Saban at uh, University of Alabama, obviously football coach, very famous, was talking about. And he said, you know, one of the things that people don't realize about high performance, by the way, he actually has, has studied this academically as well. And he applies it clearly in his business as being a coach. But it's the, he goes, it's not so much about the, the talent because the thing that's really, really hard to do is the consistency, right? The day in, the day out practice, sort of that chop wood, carry water aspect of somewhat mundane aspects of, of life. But if you really want to see progress to your point, or you were saying the reps, getting the reps in, you sort of have to, you know, establish, okay, well, how am I going to sort of facilitate my day so I can, even when I don't feel like doing it, have the discipline to still go get after and do the work that I've, I've sort of set, you know, my goals against. Right. I remember preparing for a basketball trot and was like, you got to go get in at least at least 100 jumpers, you know, any break you had. Right. Just trying to trying to keep the motion fresh. And over a course of a week, that's that's a good amount of repetition. I had a coach. I made this AAU team when I was 16 and I thought I was practicing a lot of basketball at the time. And he goes, OK, great. He goes, OK, now what you have to do is 500 shots a day. And I was like, a day? I go, what about my practice? He goes, yeah, in addition to your practice at school. So I could see where we've, you know, where we are today now where kids in many ways are choosing, but even still to be able to play at a division one level in sports, the commitment that's required is, is so significant. You know, I sort of question whether or not for many, should that be the case? Whether or not they should be putting in that much time. Correct. One of the things I wanted to talk about today, when we talk about performance or sort of change, end of the year is always a great time to talk a little bit about the New Year's resolution and the New Year's resolutions never worked for me. And so I, I went looking for a different way to understand what that might look like for me, right? To make progress and, and growth as it happens, right? As I recently was able to 
graduate with my you know degree in performance psychology from UWS. Congratulations. Yes. Sorry. I should have led off with that. Walked into Cedars-Sinai Hospital last week with a mask on and COVID and somebody stopped me dead in the tracks, the janitor, and goes, Dr. O, what are you doing here? And I was like, hmm. you know, only certain people from certain places <laughs> called me, you know, shorten my last name because we have these multi-syllable last names, right? And it was just this fascinating experience of, of like trying to like get through the mask and the eyes and <laughs> figure out where, like it clearly recognized me on the spot. So forever forward, you are Dr. Greg. <laughs> but yeah, so this, this idea of sleep, for example, is something that has become just a major part of, of my work and my practice and quite frankly, my curiosity, because for one, I was never much of a big sleeper. I'd hear a lot about, you know, more recently anyway, the attention that athletes like Roger Federer or LeBron James or Venus Williams have placed on uh, of how much they're focusing on sleep as a critical part of their rest and recovery, their training process, really. And so a lot of times uh, we as humans won't you know, give ourselves enough time to sleep. We, we, we barely get enough. And when we look at issues related to diabetes and metabolic disease and mental health uh, here in the United States and, and globally as well, you know, we're looking for a lot of different answers or solutions on how to sort of repair that. My feeling on the matter is that one of the key, key components is our ability to optimize or find what is the appropriate amount of sleep, not just to get by, but for us to be able to truly thrive. And so I spent some time, again, looking at athletes, looking at professional athletes, looking at research that has now been put out there. One of the more popular, I think, pundits or advocates, researchers, quite frankly, more so on it is, is uh, Matthew Walker at uh, Berkeley and then Sherry Ma at Stanford, where he wrote Matthew, or Dr. Walker, I don't know him personally, but he wrote a book, Why We Sleep. And he's done a number of different podcasts and he does a fantastic job of articulating all the different components of what happens during the sleep process and really how much sleep adults need, not just kids, but, but all of us. And it just really surprised me the information that I was able to understand or how I perceive what was what was being communicated. And I looked at uh, some of the work that Sherry Ma was doing because she had done some work specifically with athletes and how they were trying to sort of see with an increased amount of sleep rest time and a ability to be more regular with sleep-wake cycles, circadian rhythm stuff, would a increase in performance occur? And she was able to, through her research, show that that was what was happening in terms of their ability to not just function in their sport of choice, but be able to, quite frankly, have higher levels of just wakefulness during the day and be able to perform better just in life in general. And so I think those were sort of meaningful bits of research that they've spent a critical amount of time exploring. I by no means am an expert on it, but it's something that is really intriguing of, to me, so much so that I've tried to sort of apply that in my own life. And I've noticed a significant difference. What, what changes have you made, Greg, specifically, or what habits can some of our listeners adapt to if they're looking to improve their performance at work or as an athlete? Well, the first step was I, I was always questioning how much sleep do I actually need? How much sleep can I get? I talk to people who say, ah, you know, you don't need that much sleep. That's, that's, that's completely, you know, false. And I talk to others who say, no, no, I realize I need to get more sleep. 
But what ends up happening is I'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and then I can't get back to sleep because my mind turns on. And so there are you know, a number of different reasons why we as a society are not sleeping well. But for myself, what I did was I started establishing a, a pretty hard line in terms of like when I would just, everything would just get shut down. And so for me, it was 10 o'clock. After 10 o'clock, it didn't matter. You know, everything had to be turned off. Lights were turned off. Computer was turned off. And I knew that, that I needed to start going to sleep, start falling asleep. And what I found was that it wasn't actually too difficult for me to actually fall asleep. It would take me maybe 15 minutes. And then I would try to see how long I could sleep. And during COVID, it was, it was actually a really, well, I would say that sort of the COVID shutdown on, on things, since I didn't have to be somewhere as early in the morning in certain, in certain cases, I was able to see how long I could sleep. And I was actually regularly getting a solid, you know, eight and a half to nine hours in some cases, nine hours plus of sleep a day without actually having to try too hard and still be able to, you know, get in a, you know, solid 45 or 50 minute run and then, you know, do a lot of work during the day and, you know, manage things with, a, you know, my son's school and stuff like that. So the change really started with commitment to trying to see how much sleep I can get and really sort of setting that to stop line or start line with being, for me, it was 10 o'clock. Yeah, that's a great, great point. I know I'm playing around with one of the uh, accountability apps I don't know how you feel about the use of technology. There's one called Stick, which apparently you make a commitment. And if you meet it, then you might, you know, at the end of the week, you know, if, if, if you don't, if you don't meet it, then you get to, uh, you know, give a, a donation to a charity or something like that. So you're playing for a little bit of uh, stakes or that someone else is aware that you're committing to this challenge. If it's hard to make a change, I know for myself, moving bedtimes with COVID, all of a sudden it became because everyone was around each other all the time, that staying up later became the only way to find personal space. And yet when you stay up later, you're cutting into either sleep or any kind of morning meditative or, you know, focusing time, which I find to be really essential to, to my mental state and, and my mindfulness practice. Are you noticing yeah. any of that in the, in the clients that you have? Sort of also circling back the hard stop, whether or not technology, I'm an advocate of doing, of finding out for yourself what types of things, how you can sort of, you know, create little games or processes, more specifically routines that work for you. So I always say, try it on for you just because something I'm doing something a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work for another individual. I've definitely learned that I've developed the belief that we are all N of one, very unique, very complex systems. So if, if an app is something that will help you be accountable, fantastic. I tend to not necessarily, I have those. And so it, it rings, it pings at 10 o'clock every night. So it lets me know that it's that time. Uh, I was able to, over time, be able to you know create that routine for myself. The other thing I also did was I made sure that I was not drinking uh, caffeine, taking anything caffeinated after three o'clock, two, three o'clock really in the afternoon. It's probably more like two. And so I've, you know, Dr. Walker, I think he talks a lot about this and then other things I've read, you know, how much caffeine you consume during the day. You don't even know some of the things that you're consuming that have caffeine in it. And if you do take that late at night, how that affects, you might still be able to fall asleep, but it does have an effect on actually your wake up and then how alert you become when you wake up, let's say at two or three o'clock in the morning. So I've been very disciplined about, about that as well. And then I try to minimally get in about two liters of water. I try to get into two to three liters of water a day uh, to be able to make sure that I'm hydrated. And I've heard that from a number of clients too, that their ability to, to restrict caffeine and their ability to actually have had direct positive effects subjectively, because they're the one telling me this on their goals and being able to sort of achieve better sleep, higher quality sleep, and in, and in hopefully in many cases, longer amounts of sleep. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, the integrative approach to mind-body health helps us focus on, right? That, that you drink more caffeine, you're more dehydrated. It, it has this, you know, the, if you're more dehydrated, there's probably more inflammation, could be greater pain or harder to recover. So, I mean, there's there's all these connections between, like you said, the habits we have, and we're not even aware, like uh, sometimes the caffeination that's being placed in different items right now. Guilty as charged, right? Hard to make that shift from long work days and trying to keep yourself focused versus what you need to shut down and shut off and recover. When I think about health, I don't just think about physical health. I think about obviously mental health as well. My master's work was in clinical mental health counseling. It was only because of that that academic course of study and then ultimately my clinical training that made me more aware of how disordered sleep is, I think, a component of every issue within the DSM. It's some form of uh, impairment, right? When you go to your doctor's office, they ask you, right, are you sleeping too much? Are you sleeping too little? They don't even say specifically how much you should be sleeping because again, it's a little bit different. But when you say to somebody, oh, you need to be getting eight or eight and a half hours of sleep, or quite frankly, teenagers need to be getting at least, you know, somewhere around nine hours of sleep all the time. People are saying that's just not possible. Right. They're saying our, our lives are too busy. It's not possible. Leave it up to you subjectively. This is again, why I circle back to sleep. And it's like, well, how much, just like with working out, how much working out should we be doing? How much sleep should we be trying to get? Athletes, adult and adolescent athletes should be trying to get somewhere between nine to 10 hours of sleep. I've done talks where I've more formally done these at school separately with teenagers knew that I for a long time struggled with my ability to consistently get a lot of sleep. When I ask the question all the time, I, the answer I get back is roughly, you know, 80 to 90% of the people in the room from an adult standpoint are getting six hours or less of sleep every night. And so, yes, we can still get out there and perform, but are we optimizing our performance? Clearly not. And then what effects does that have on our health? Most people are aware of the night shift research that has been done, that if you work the night shift and nothing else changes in terms of like your lifestyle, the night shift workers tend to sort of have a 10% or more, I think it was, of, of all-cause mortality, right? And it was just because, again, working at these disrupted sort of, you know, sleep times. But young people, you know, I'm, I'm even, I shouldn't say I'm more concerned, but I guess I am maybe, is that when I did this, again, it's a non-scientific research, I, I asked the students to fill out what time, at least 75% of them are not getting enough sleep. They're, they're well underslept. But I was surprised at how many, I think it was almost half, uh, are sleeping somewhere in that six to six and a half hour range. And I'm not sure how a how that's at all good for a 15 or 16 year old, let alone somebody who's an athlete as well, because uh, you're not giving yourself, you know, full sleep cycles, being able to sort of do that physical repair and the sort of the cognitive repair. And I just, I don't know, I just sort of feel like that that's all part of what's catching up with society and sort of how it's affecting our mental and physical health in the long term. Yeah, agreed. As, as a psychologist that works with residents and doctors at, at, at local hospitals and who served as a crisis responder himself, and, you know, there were times after being on a 2 a.m. crisis call and having to be back at your desk at eight where I don't really know what capacity for decision making we really leave ourselves in those moments when we don't have rest. We may be physically present. So it's, it is concerning and it's concerning with the amount of stress that has been placed on, you know, healthcare providers. But you're pointing it out, right? That the stress on teens, athletes carrying heavy, you know, class loads, and the importance of sleep and having something to, you know, down-regulate, something that helps you rest. But also for me, it's it's some form of play, something that, that's restful, that's not always about being on all the time. 
And I think, you know, when you talk about apps and technology, that is something where we're kind of always on and it's a dangerous pressure we're putting on ourselves to always be high performers. It's kind of ironic that, that sometimes the way to become successful as an athlete or as a businessman or as a father or, or, you know, or mother, right, is that we need to have times when we are not on. So I'm wondering if there's a habit related to that that, that you've thought of or anything that you've found that helps you to uh, decompress and disconnect a little bit. You know, most athletes are like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, right. So where's the balance? Yeah. People say I'm officially a hippie and <laughs> I never would have thought that in some cases, but I have my Birkenstocks. I have a little bit of long hair and I also like to surf. So, you know, other than running, uh, surfing has been another place for me to, I got to tell you, just even just to go out into the water and float is, uh, is amazing to sort of take in the beauty of, of any environment, let alone least of which Southern California, which is fantastic. But I've also, I don't necessarily I would perceive meditation to be and what I've learned it to be. A lot of times I just really focus on taking some deep breaths. And I think sometimes when you're sort of in the heat of things where there's some stress or something has, has affected you and the more present you are with sort of understanding and identifying what that feeling is, it's amazing to me how, how much better I feel when I'm able to just stop for a second, take a deep breath, kind of let it go and, and then get back into what I need to get back into. It's restorative. Also naps. I, I, don't, I tend to not have to take naps very much anymore, but that was definitely something that I also found myself doing over the last many years uh, at various different stages when if I had to do a late night push for something that I wanted to get in a nap just to sort of take the edge off. And sometimes, I, of course, I started with sleeping as long as I needed to. And the next thing you know, that became a problem because then I wasn't actually going able to fall. I was in this recent to 30 minutes, you're really only getting into that first first and second phase of sleep. And that even though it's it's restorative cognitively, it's not going to sort of disrupt your your late night sleep. And it'll add a little bit, uh, bring a little back. So those are some things that I do to kind of get, uh, sort of right the ship, so to speak. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of naps. If I can get my, my weekend nap in, I'm a lot better man for it. For sure. You know, which usually accompanied with uh, opening a good book, letting my brain study something interesting that I want to talk about on a podcast or a show. You know, it gives me a way to think about things in a way where it's not stressed and not involved in pressure. And uh, usually that stepping back helps me focus a little bit more clearly in a more applied manner. About focus. I'd like to wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Bring it, Greg. Bring it. How do we enhance our focus? Yeah. I mean, you know, especially, right? Stress brings our focus out kind of. So how do we, or gets us too focused on very small things? How can we improve and restore our focus? Well, the first thing for me is I, I thought I understood what being focused meant. And over the last several years, I've developed sort of a new appreciation for when I am focused and when I'm maybe not as focused. And it's really sort of that that reflection of, I don't know, attention in, in many ways. Uh, am I focused on writing a paper? You know, I set myself up so these other distractions that may exist around me are not going to sort of come in and, you know, change my attention. But one's ability to just keep practicing that, whether it's, again, just on a run, 
on a uh, having a conversation. You're just being really present in that moment is is something that has really helped me out. And again, it's something that I think feels pretty good to do, but it's something that does for me anyway, takes a lot of attention. I, I really have to work on directing my mind towards that, like stay in this, stay focused, kind of a self-talk routine, you know, that we learn about in performance psychology. I call them sometimes unwanted guests. Sometimes they just sort of show up out of nowhere and you're kind of like, uh, yeah, not only those thoughts in my head right now. And so I've learned to sort of show them the back door and get back to, let's say the game at hand. What is it the thing that I really want to be doing? Where do I want my mind to go? And that, that always improves me that we are able to do that. But again, these were things that I needed to sort of have brought to my attention, explain to me, try on, work on them over a long period of time that that allowed me to sort of, again, make them a part of my regular routine now or sort of how I, how I exist. Where right. Past- that's, that's a learning from, for most people, let alone athletes, right? That you are not your thoughts. We really believe sometimes that, uh, you know, that our cognition is who we are, right? The whole Rene Descartes, you know, I, I think therefore I am, right? We believe these thoughts, we start listening to them. And when you're an athlete, that can be catastrophic when the chatter turns sour. So do you, did you learn or did you practice any kind of like, you know, acronyms for reminding you to let it go? Or what practices do you have to uh, show the unwanted guests the door? What I did for me really was that I learned that what was most important was that I had to become more alert that those thoughts were those thoughts, right? Because you could sort of get into, let's say, a negative thought cycle or rumination, and you just sit in it. And I'm more quickly better able to sort of, oh, there are those thoughts, I don't need these thoughts. Dr. Dan Siegel popularized this out of UCLA, where you can point your mind, create sort of new neural pathways in the brain to sort of, you know, create, call it in some ways, what I might say, a super highway of, of the, the the right thinking, as opposed to the, you know, the, the wrong thinking that that maybe is, is not something you are wanting to bring in. And just that sort of reframe or that adjustment, it's like, recognize this exists. Oh, that's happening. Okay. Where do you actually want your mind to go? Get refocused back on where that is. I'm a big, big fan of self-determination theory, you know, Desi and Ryan, where autonomy, competency, and relatedness. But in that, it's like, oh, I have this ability to do this. I can do this on my own. Uh, that sort of belief after practicing and, and, and doing it over and over again, get pretty good at it. And you sort of just br- bring that into your into your daily life that way. Desi and Ryan, yes. Now you're bringing up, this will be on the uh, performance psychology exam for all of you burgeoning mental skills coaches or psychologists or consultants out there. So Thank you for bringing such relevant research. And you yourself completed a research study recently. Was it related to sleep and performance? Are you referring to when I was collecting the information on the uh, the high school kids for their sleep? Uh, that or for your own uh, doctorate? Or was it- yeah, no, mine was a, applied work. So when you did the research on uh, high school students, which I know is also an area, right, chronically sleep deprived. It was just sort of a way to try and see if I could engage a, you know, a group of high school aged kids uh, in this concept of having a dialogue about sleep. Because everybody believes that they, you know, they don't need more sleep. However, when you start to have these conversations and they, it feels a little bit like a group, you know, like a group, you know, session where people start sharing with each other and they're saying, oh yeah, I go to bed at two in the morning and I get up at 6.30. And then they're like, is that, you know, is that not helpful to me? <laughs> and, and I think everybody realizes, begins to realize like, yeah, I think I need more sleep, but then the challenge is, well, how do I get more sleep? You, you said something earlier in our, you know, chat today about, you know, what about me time? I, another th- phrase that I use or that I've heard from people is I just don't want to, meaning like, I just don't want to go to sleep yet because I didn't get whatever that me time or, or, you know, some sort of control in my life to do these other things. 
And I've had others say, yeah, no, I, I shut everything off, but I look up at the ceiling. Teenagers aren't sleeping is because, uh, you know, social media or, you know, these digital devices. I think certainly there's an element to that without a doubt, but I think it's much more complex and much more nuanced than that, depending on the individual's system, family system, and sort of the pressures that they feel in terms of what they're trying to achieve at any moment in time. And quite frankly, there's no, there's a, tends to be a, um, what I'd say a lack of, of accountability or forcing function on like ultimately shutting it all down and accepting the reality that, well, you may not get the perfect score on the test. It's okay to not be perfect. And I think there's a lot of, again, external pressure on uh, achieving a certain status, achieving a certain level, having to get into a certain school, and little to no focus on uh, beginning to explore who you are, what what are you moved, what moves you, what do you move towards, what do you sort of enjoy, what do you sort of want to avoid. And as you sort of better understand who you are, you'll start to figure out what you could be really good at. And uh, ultimately, I think that's something that I have found for many people and myself, a more sustainable, higher quality way of, of existing in the world. Beautifully put. And, and I'm glad you're out there working with athletes and with all kinds of adults who are trying to improve their mental health, because this kind of wisdom only comes sometimes from personal experience. We get a lot from our advanced degrees and clearly, uh, you know, your research and, and the theorists out there that are making an impact. But I don't even know, right, that that part of me that became a workaholic that started to work extra hours because it's about, you know, being of service or being a provider, things that go along with what I thought to be the core male identity or necessity. And yet at times that can really take away being effective or, or joy or passion. So teaching younger adults from a, an early age that they need to be thinking about what they're passionate about, what they like, and at least finding a way to incorporate that, incorporate that into their lifestyle. Uh, otherwise, right, you run into burnout, you run into all kinds of other stress. And like you said, then, right, what you don't see is that then sleep, appetite, right, all of the things start to get impacted by that level of stress. And I can speak from personal experience, you know, even when you're making unlimited overtime, it's not worth it. You pay for it in other ways. So, you know, how do we, you know, there's the books that are out there, Simon Sinek, start with why, following your passion, right? How do we bring this into the, you talk about the family ecosystem, into our internal dialogue with ourselves, that we're constantly doing kind of a year-end inventory of what am I passionate about? Where's the space in my life for fun or adventure, you know, or just a hobby, something that would help you to feel good about yeah. your commitment? I'm a little bit in conflict with those individuals that are out there that that I think they overemphasize the word passion. Because what I'm finding in young people in particular, but also adults, that they say, I don't know what I'm passionate about, right? And it's a heavy, heavy word for a lot of people. What I've noticed that helps uh, start this, this process or the changes what, what, are you, what are you interested in? What is just interesting to you? When you're just sort of scrolling online or you're sort of thinking or you're sort of trying to just pay more attention to the world, what gets your attention? What captures that? This is actually something I heard, uh, was something that Steven Spielberg had sort of been noted about saying was look for that little spark. Start with the spark first and say, oh, you know, this makes you feel good or this it captures your attention. And sitting on the beach, I saw an F-14 Falcon fly and I looked up the sky and I said, I want to do that. Right. <laughs> I want to fly in that jet uh, without ever knowing. It was knowing just what, that moment. It was that moment. I, whatever, what, I didn't know, had no clue, of course, what it took to do that. But I thought, well, if that person can do it, whoever that person is, maybe I could too. And so, you know, I had a conversation. My father was able to get me in a plane when I was 14. 
went up for a flight. I remember having this horrible headache that day, but I still still did it, right? You know, you got to play through pain. You learn that as an athlete. And I thought this was really cool to be able to all of a sudden see the world from a different angle. And then at 16, I told him, I said, oh, I'm going to start taking flight lessons. And they're like, how are you going to do that? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to ride my bike to the airport. I have a job. I work. I have saved some money. I'm going to just, you know, take some lessons and see, see how it goes. And so it was, I'm shocked that they did that. And they let me do that. I was flying planes before I was literally able to, you know, get my driver's license. Right. It takes a supportive environment. It takes having people that are willing to support those inclinations, those desires, Right. It takes people willing to listen. Yeah. They they trusted that I was going to go up there and take it very seriously and that I wasn't just some sort of, you know, I was a very serious kid, I guess, in some ways. And so I did that and I continued to follow that, that path into college while I was also doing business and finance and some other things. The industry, of course, got a little banged up when, when I was getting out of school. So it was a little bit difficult, but what I realized, and it took me to go through that experience was that I love seeing the world from that angle. I love being in a plane and flying in the skies. It's taken me to be able to fly. A, uh, I was got, got a ride in a MIG, uh, the Red Bull MIG, which was probably the most ex- exciting flight experience I've ever had. I've flown seaplanes, flew, flew in uh, jets, you know, the, you know, commercial airlines. But as I got older, that type of business was a little too restrictive for me. And there were some other risks that were involved in that, that I, I didn't want to be limited. And so I ended up sort of moving in a different direction, which ultimately had this, it was this lifelong sort of question that I've had, which is why we do what we do. I've always asked that question. And it just so happened that much later in life, I finally got to the point of saying, you know what, after working in the entertainment and uh, tech space, uh, doing marketing and business development, some other things. I said, you know what, I'm going to, uh, I was mostly curious again about uh, performance, optimizing uh, in sort of uh, pressure oriented spaces, whether it's through sport or some sort of other career finance, things like that. And what was the difference between how some people were able to be successful and why others were not in terms of sort of meeting those goals and objectives that are sort of a part of that process. That along with a lot of what we're seeing now in media relative to, quite frankly, the courage talking about their mental health in terms of the challenges, whether it's Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles. I mean, just today I saw that the female gymnasts who were a part of the Nasser, I guess, lawsuit, but more specifically, you know, the abuse that they that they had to endure to achieve this goal of becoming a U.S. Olympian and sort of pursuing those gold medals, were at least able to win some sort of a compensation relative to that. But regardless of that, like I, I see a lot of people that still don't understand how these types of things can affect the individual. And so I give Simone Biles you know, a lot of credit in the when the lights were the brightest, she wasn't feeling right. And she was able to say, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this. I'm going to have to take a step back. And I'm not sure if people really understand how difficult that is. She made a choice for herself to try and figure out whether it's football, baseball, basketball. This is something that is becoming more to the surface. And I realized I wanted to be a part of both of those conversations and see how I can sort of more positively help, you know, bring change in in those in that space as well. So beautifully said. And, and that's something, you know, I talk about quite often in, in the world of somatic psychology, transitions in, in the nature of themselves are traumatic. So whether it be right, retiring or taking a break from something or leaving collegiate sports, I mean, we've had guests on the show that are 
child uh, figure skaters. And, and, you know, at 20 years old, you're retiring after 16 years in the sport. I mean, so we're talking about changes that are really hard to make and that are opposed sometimes to your daily routine of staying at it and pushing things aside. And so listening to your own inner voice and knowing you need help and knowing you need that level of care and knowing you have other questions you want to ask and venues you want to explore with curiosity. Like you said, it may not be about finding your passion, but it may be about just being curious about yourself and about what interests you and giving yourself that gift of time to explore. Yeah. So this, this for me, this this field, again, this was many, many years coming, probably, I mean, many decades of just independent exploration of what I could find in books, what I could find online. And ultimately, one day I just came to the conclusion that I just wasn't able to sort of resource that as deep as I wanted to go on my own. And so I was very fortunate to find a program that actually was the bullseye for both of these things, right? Being able to get the the clinical work and and uh, the academic experience within the mental health space, but now also be able to do that and and sort of bookend that with the sport and what, frankly, really performance psychology because it's it's not just about sport in terms of these types of environments and uh, training and development program. So I think I think there's going to be. Anyway, I'm just very fortunate that I was able to find that at this t- time of my life, while at the same time, really knowing that even on a bad day, on a day when I'm tired, on a day I'm not feeling like it, I, I'm, I'm actually really excited about trying to get up. And anytime I can have a conversation about this and work with a client and see these changes that that really are transformational in, in their experience, whether it's just a psychoeducational conversation or something more more complex than that, I, I know that I finally found that thing, right? But it, I found it through being curious and trying to sort of be just more aware of like, what is it about interesting about me? So that's why I think with young people, we put too much pressure on them as, oh, what do you want to do when you get older? There is absolutely, for maybe a, a select few have figured it out. They've had that spark happen, but something like this takes time. And so to kind of, I know we've we've um, had a chance to sort of have quite quite full conversation before actually really just talking about what change looks like. And for me, you know, Petraska's trans-theoretical model of change was that thing, that other thing that I learned about how long change typically takes. And so this is a perfect time of year where we're like, oh, New Year's resolutions. And, but, you know, it's well publicized that something like, you know, 90%, let's say, or more, who knows what who they are and, and what <laughs> who comes up with these percentages. But I think everybody would very comfortably agree that before like the end of February, the New Year's resolutions, the majority of them have already been busted, right? And so as New Year's resolutions didn't really work for me, I, I said, well, what, how does change work? And change, quite frankly, and, and the Petraskas use this with their, their model is, you know, it could take nine to 12 months, quite frankly. And obviously there's other factors, motivation, things like that, that will affect that. And the thing it is that you're trying to sort of affect change in, but stage one is really, do I even really need change? You're not even aware of change even becoming a thing. Stage two, I might want to change that. What do I need to know about that? Stage three is this decision like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I need to change this thing. And then you start sort of building those habits and, and processes that allow you to do that, which is effectively stage four. And then five, I think it's just, it's the maintenance phase, right? Where at that point, you know, you, it's now become a regular part of your daily or weekly routine. And that for me has taken about, about that time, you know, eight, nine months, you know, in some cases, but as you get better with establishing and having uh, establishing the habits and the routines, the discipline to do it becomes easier. I never really thought of myself as an overly disciplined person. You know, you look at guys like David Goggins, you know, his line is stay hard. Pete Carroll is, is I think, win forever. But, you know, I sort of developed a personal philosophy around just this idea of, you know, seek to understand, seek to understand yourself, seek to understand what are those other things. Realize that it, it does take time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. You'll eventually get to the point of really making the decision to say yes, but how do I go about doing that? And in many ways, as I was training 
training for the Ironman races, it takes nine to 12 months to really sort of prepare, your, prepare yourself for something like that. Well, Greg, I could talk to you for days. I hope we do continue the conversation and collaboration. Uh, but I want to thank you. I want to congratulate you. And I want to give our guests a chance to know how to reach out to you professionally. If you wouldn't mind, let us know uh, your LinkedIn, your Twitter. What do you like these days? Yeah, right now, really, it's uh, the access is through through LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is just Greg Matu, G-R-E-G-M-A-T-U. Now that I'm getting through the academic portion of this uh, training, I'll be turning up those other more easily accessible locations uh, online. The more information there to make it uh, make it more easily accessible. Thank you so much, and we'll be we'll be putting Greg's contact in the show notes. And he brought us a lot of gifts and tools today on sleep, your rest time, the effect on your performance, commitment to a stop or smart line. Uh, also on how to get rid of some of those unwanted guests those thoughts that bombard us to be continued. Thank you so much. Honored and humbled to be your acquaintance. And I'm wishing you happy holidays and a happy new year. Well, thank you again, all the Richard Listens followers and listeners. I hope you got a lot out of that uh, new year with different take on setting your new year's commitments and goals. And I hope to be a resource to you and a loved one. Keep a lookout. The Zero Method coming out in early 2022 through Amazon and hopefully listed on my website as well. If you or someone you know needs help and are looking to channel your inner hero and get a little bit deeper, a little bit more connected to yourself, your goals, and become a little bit more closer to the human being you would like to become, please reach out to me, richardlistens.com or at richardlistens on Instagram. This is Richard, and I'm out.